0: Rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals.
1: Stand by! Three cheers for Her Majesty, the Queen.
2: Rachel, spring frenzy
0: has hit hard. I know I'm liking your puff sleeve also. It's really cute. I'm so so into that style. I know people are mixed on it, but it's so cute. I love peering through the zoom at our fashion.
2: (laughs) Oh, you're so sweet. I really hate to admit this, but it's from Amazon. Don't tell me. I love it. <laughs> I'm Roberta. And I'm Rachel. And follow us on Instagram if you haven't already. It's at podcast. Also send us an email, info at gallerypodcasts.com. Rachel, what is on tap for today?
0: I wish it, I wasn't kicking things off with this, but Prince Andrew. Womp womp. Ugh. And Fergie's Instagram. This is some bizarre stuff. We're going to talk about that. A Royal Rhoda photo request slash requirement. That was a great piece. We're going to talk about that. Kate and William's Top Gun Date Night, so much more. We're also joined by special guest Tom Quinn, who's the author of the new book, Scandals of the Royal Palaces, an intimate memoir of royals behaving badly. This was such a fun conversation. So that's all coming up. But first,
2: and now it's time for the weekly royal cocktail.
0: What are we sipping today? I have to open mine up. (laughs) My single serve wine. Oh, dry white do.
2: wine. Do you have dry white wine?
0: I have dry white wine. What? It is from Wander and Ivy, but don't oh, yeah. judge me. You can hear my ice cubes. I forgot to chill it, Roberta, ahead of time. I, oh, I am such an ice cube and wine. I like feel like <laughs> everything it's actually, I've admitted like, about so... myself today
2: is wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but no, I like I um I just had to do it. I can't drink it warm. That's just gross. So yeah. Anyways, yeah. cheers. Cheers. While we're sipping, I want to just first hear, how was your weekend? You had some travel woes. Uh, so
2: that's why I said spring frenzy at the top of the episode because it's st- stressful. I was one of those like tens of thousands of people that was like cancellations and all that. and In, in like in Miami, great, right? Yes, in Miami. So um, I'm still in Florida, but um, it's all okay. In the grand scheme of things, it's like so insignificant and not a big deal at all, but it just... It is one of those things that's so hard to deal with because you're you're out of control. Like you have no control over yeah. the situation. And so it was like my flight was canceled, but there were no rebooking options till two days later. So I would have had to sleep in the airport for two nights. I have friends in Miami, so I obviously could have not done that. But it just was like that thought. And then trains were booking up, buses. I looked at everything. There was – I went to so many rental car places. They were all out of rental cars. It was just – it was just so. I. It was a lot of tears shed.
0: I'll say that. There I were do a lot love of tears. that your first thought was the podcast. Roberta sent me a <laughs> frantic text in the midst of her travel worries, being like, "I will make it to a microphone this week. I promise you that." And I was like, "You have your priorities in the right place, but also don't worry about the podcast." My first thought is always the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, while we're sipping and talking and letting go of our weekends and moving on, how are forward, well, How was
2: your weekend then? Are you? It okay? was. Fine. It was uneventful. It was
0: lovely. We're going to discuss this listener email. We got a lot of good responses about potential archetypes podcast guests. It was so fun to sift through. Stuart recommended Michelle Obama. His reasons. They've met before, both have deals with Spotify. But also, this is a quote Michelle had her fair share of media criticism from the fist bump to her sleeveless portrait. The list goes on and on. It would be amazing to hear these two powerful women talk about it together. Other recommendations Leah sent in: Kim Kardashian, Britney Spears, or Malala. I like this on Britney. Leah said Britney has certainly had low times, as has Megan, and can also relate to quote being silenced by family who are supposed to have your best interests at heart. I feel like just the amount of recommendations that came in really made me even more excited for. I'm anticipating June. I know they said summer release, right?
2: I liked that Leah said about Kim Kardashian, which this is a good point, too. She said, with all the Kanye abuse claims, yes. she probably has a lot to add on the topic of being a woman in the public eye. It's so true. And what a good collaboration. I mean, it just would be – so many eyes would be on the Archetypes podcast if she yeah. went on. So I think really reflecting Britney would
0: be my number one. I didn't even think of that, and I just – I would love to hear that conversation, mm-hmm. but lots of possibilities here. Yeah. We also just wanted to thank so many of you for writing in with offers to buy us British Vogue. I feel like we heard from so many via DM, via email. We feel so supported with our quest to locate this We may have like magazine. 20 copies on our way from,
2: <laughs> from <laughs> listeners all around, and we're so grateful. And also – so jealous of all the people going to London in the coming months and I know, weeks. It's like Actually, everyone's going to London wait, wait, except wait.
0: us. L- can I just quickly pull up this DM I got of someone that won a ticket for the Jubilee? <gasps> like, you know, you enter. Wow. Alex, she said she got picked in the lottery to wow. go to the Trooping of the Color, the one that the Queen will be at. And she said, I'm unwell. <laughs> just her reaction. I loved it. So anyways, we've been I'm lot of for you, Alex. That's incredible. A lot of excitement bubbling up. But let's talk royal history now. Now, this week in royal history. The death of Prince Philip, we are somber one. Honoring that this week. Obviously the service of Thanksgiving was on March 29th. This is the 1-year anniversary of his loss, which I can't I I think a year goes by just so quick. It's mm-hmm. I think back to that time, you know, he was 99 years old. Some of the big images of that funeral that we can think back of of course it was during COVID. We have the Queen alone. I think that's the main memory that all of us Mm -hmm. collectively share. I think the other, you know, juxtaposed with that was the optimism of a Harry and William reunion. Remember that, Mm. Roberta? It was like all eyes were on that exit. Kate
2: as the facilitator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was like the, I think she was called like the peacemaker. And it really did seem like she struck up the conversation as they were walking out and then she kind of let them be. And that was like. And the cameras
0: like trailed off.
2: Yeah, very, in like, a smart move on her part, it felt like, so. Or or perhaps
0: unintentional. Like, I right, felt like it all true. just felt so organic. And it was a few weeks after the Oprah interview aired. This was Harry's first reunion with his family since that moment. So there was Philip's Land Rover that was, you know, all the funeral plans were mapped out by him. Of course, they had to be adjusted for COVID. And then something that always sits with me is the buglers playing action stations at the end of it. Remember, just that's this, mm. the song that's used to yeah. summing crew to battle readiness. I I remember that being particularly poignant. But yeah, I just think there's been a lot of coverage on the anniversary of his death. And one particularly interesting reflection I read was just one of the greatest legacies, this was in the Telegraph, of Philip is perhaps his being a role model for future consorts. And I feel like that's actually pretty interesting because of the support that he gave the Queen for 73 years.
2: Yeah. I do like too that, um, One of the moments from this recent service of Thanksgiving that we saw, um, you know, unfortunately, Andrew really overshadowed it for a lot of people. But I did learn later that March 29th is a significant date. So it's what is it nods to his role in the Royal Navy. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So apparently This was a very under-the-radar connection to the date, but Philip, on March 29th, 1941, manned a searchlight aboard the HMS Valiant, and it was under enemy fire during the Battle of Cape Matapan, and he was mentioned in dispatches for his bravery and actions on that day, and the Queen always thinks of him as that hero, and it was a time in his life also where he had an identity that was very different from his role as... Mm consort so and
2: i don't think that was broadcast really like it was like a march 29th date just works well in the royal calendar and it's a week away from his actual anniversary of his death but i think knowing that and knowing all of the connections now you know the edinburgh green that everyone wore i think that there were these under-the-radar connections that are are kind of interesting as a royal watcher to figure out later, so.
0: Absolutely. I do, not to squeeze this in here, but that piece about the March 29th service of Thanksgiving and what actually went down with Richard Pohl, who was the Royal Rota photographer at Westminster Abbey, where he was actually given instructions to not take photos until the Queen had taken her seat. The piece in the Times is 1 million percent worth the read because it's this rare moment of pulling the curtain back. I was really impressed that he revealed this experience. Did you what did you think, Roberta?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm shocked because I think like I I think it just adds to this overshadowing of what it was really all about and it became all about Andrew and the fact that they really wanted to hide it feels even more manipulative almost yeah that they and the were fact that richard to, went
0: rogue like he yeah, what, clearly had him. experience with tony blair going rogue like he was like what did he say he got into like a like a scuffle when he was restricted once before yeah. but he was the one person in the you know in the abbey responsible for capturing and delivering these images to the world and so he really couldn't not take photos of that You know Andrew escorting the queen down the aisle. Fascinating. Go read it. The only other mention I wanted to make about April 9th is it does overlap with Charles and Camilla's wedding anniversary. Also, looking back in royal history, they are celebrating 17 years together. They got married on April 9th, 2005. I don't want to laugh about this because it's such
2: a sad – we're talking about such a sad this week in royal history, but it just – it's like, of course, it's Charles where his wedding anniversary – is is also his dad's passing? It's just, like, I feel like you and I were kind of, like, Char- it would be Charles. You know what I Charles, mean? Charles.
0: Like- poor Charles. He's just, like, can't catch a break. Yeah, I know. Exactly. But it is, like you said, a very somber occasion you can't control. But, yeah. yeah. He even shifted that wedding date way back when because of the death of Pope John Paul II. So...
2: right for this week's news we have that weird prince andrew instagram (laughs) moment but also the story that broke from the telegraph about these fraudulent gifts of money so i'm gonna break this down for you rachel real quick so a long time ago there was this pitch at palace thing that andrew was controlling and he gave an award to a mr turk for his pitch at palace um award ceremony and this is all coming out in the Telegraph. So later, um, right after Mr. Turk authorized a payment to Princess Beatrice for 750000 It was supposed to be a wedding gift for her is what they're saying now. Um, and this is made from a Turkish millionaire. So some Turkish heiress that hasn't you know, millions of dollars. She was trying to get a new passport, supposedly, and her business partner, this Mister Turk, he's very shady, um, was giving the money to the Yorks. And so there was another payment to Eugenie for twenty five thousand, and this was supposedly for a surprise birthday for their mother, Sarah Ferguson. There was also a two hundred twenty five thousand dollar payment to Fergie, and it's all been repaid, supposedly. But this story broke on Saturday. Then we get the three Instagram posts on Sarah Ferguson's official Instagram account, at SarahFerguson15.
0: And she just got verified this weekend, too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, her and Eugenie were just verified by Instagram, which is fascinating what? in itself. <laughs> People reported that.
2: Weird. Yeah, so it is at SarahFerguson15 that they share these posts written by Andrew, supposedly Fergie's the one who requested that he share his reflections on the 40th anniversary of him leaving to serve in the Falklands War with the Royal Navy. And he shares over 700 words in three different posts about the Falklands War, how it relates to the Ukraine, how when he saw active combat, he returned a changed man, and it was originally signed... The HRH, the Duke of York, which he's not supposed to be using HRH. I love Amber for sending us this immediately. <laughs> immediately sending us this post. She broke the news for me. Inside. I was like, yeah, wait, she did. what?
0: And then she followed up our with rivers. actual screenshots. So grateful. Yeah. yeah.
2: But they were – so. The first step in this was that they removed the HRH from the caption, edited that out. Like then that all three the posts problem. were taken yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. So Buckingham Palace aides were told that they were totally blindsided; they had zero clue. Rachel, I just want to know, like, what's what do you think is going on?
0: I don't know. I kind of look at it like maybe Andrew was like, "I showed up at the service of Thanksgiving. This gives me a moment to start my." path back like I just it makes no sense I think my very first reaction was there were many reactions but I also <laughs> just my editorial brain was like this guy also mainly needs an editor like I know you mentioned oh, 700 yeah, words but like say that. it was very just I, I had a hard time I had to keep rereading it, it was very difficult to decipher what he was getting at um, his thesis if you will Um, but I also was just like There's so many things. Like I said, but did we care to hear from him about Ukraine? And it also was just felt so self-serving. And why does he keep going rogue? Like, I just don't... What is he hearing from either
2: within like the palace, like as an aide yeah. or or from his own family that makes him think that
0: this is okay. Or if he is going exactly. rogue. Exactly. That's a really good observation. Like who is he surrounded with? We talk about that with a lot of people, yeah. right? Like who is in their inner circle guiding them to make these decisions or are they just totally going rogue?
2: A friend pointed this out to me the other day that the queen's almost 96. She turns 96 this month. And- I know. I have to send a birthday card. It's on my title oh, list. Good idea. Good <laughs> idea. Side yes, note. Um, but I think that because, you know, Andrew is living at Royal Lodge and he's so close to Windsor that he probably is with her all the time. And yeah. that probably makes it pretty hard to be like. We, and we've talked about he's the favorite son, you know, a mother's love, even for this, like, problem child, is that it probably makes it really hard for her to tell him no. He's always there. He's taking care of her. She's, yeah. she's 95. Like, he has basically this, like, whispering in her ear about all these things. And she really has – we talk about the queen, you know, duty before a duty and service above all else. That's been her life. That's been for the last 70 years or more been her motto, basically. And I think she kind of let the shoe drop a little bit at the yeah. service of Thanksgiving with letting him walk her in. And then also now, like he's he e- even if he has gone rogue, like he needs to realize that he's not H.R.H., that he's no one is asking for his opinion on the ukraine no one's asking for his reflections his convoluted opinion yes like especially not from someone who is quote-unquote innocent yet paid someone 12 million pounds for someone they've never met you know what i mean it's just like oh it's so unsettled out of court for a sexual abuse lawsuit like it just is like they really like I wish Nikki could come back for a third like basically a third time, first first appearance and then quote. Um They but need just to get
0: a grip on it because like I said, the like PR
2: is out of control here. This
0: year with the Jubilee just a couple months away now. I mean, really, it's almost exactly two months away from this week. I mean, they just they gotta all the all the coverage is negative. But yeah, what a what a shocker to get to see that in our feed or via Amber first.
2: <laughs> and the worst part truly is like you mentioned the families family uh, apostrophe s instead of families <laughs> plural like twice twice the error was made it's like not okay. yeah
0: just at least edit your your viewpoint and now we're joined by Tom Quinn for a fantastic conversation about royal scandals past and present Row, Rose. We are joined this week by royal biographer Tom Quinn, author of Scandals of the Royal Palaces, an intimate memoir of royals behaving badly. It's out this April in the United States. A bit about Tom, he's written biographies on a range of royal topics, including the Queen Mother's favorite servant, Backstairs Billy, and Edward VII's mistress, Alice Keppel, otherwise known as Camilla's great-grandmother. Tom, we are so thrilled to have you. Well, thank
1: you for inviting me.
0: We want to confirm. Tom, didn't Camilla famously reference Alice in an early conversation with Charles? Are we getting that right?
1: Yes, she said. Um, she said to Charles before their um, their affair started. She she said, "Look, my great grandmother and your great great grandfather um, got together. So why don't we?" I mean, that was that was actually her <laughs> chat up line, which is extraordinary. But I think it, that speaks volumes about the way the royal family see that kind of thing. They think it's very sort of middle-class to worry about fidelity, that it's just sexual fidelity. I mean, they just don't worry about it. Um, I think they've been forced to worry about it more now, but in the past, it never occurred to them.
0: What a pickup line. I love it. Yeah, that was something I did really like about your book was that context of how it really was just kind of the norm in the past, but
1: very interesting. They had this thing, too, where it was an absolute disgrace if you slept with an unmarried woman, but if you slept with one of your friend's wives, that that was fine. So they had some standards, (laughs) but to us now, perhaps they (laughs) seem very odd.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That blurred line is really interesting. But uh, we want to get your top three biggest royal scandals. For those who haven't picked up the book, it's so juicy. But so tell us what your three favorite royal scandals for our listeners.
1: My all time favorite concerns Queen Victoria, because probably as as everyone knows, Queen Victoria was an absolute stickler for behaving properly in england she she sort of the, the word sex never occurred for the the 70 odd years she was on the throne people covered um, the the legs of their tables because you, you you know legs were seen as a bit sort of you know se- had sexual connotations so the <laughs> whole country was repressed by this this queen who always wore black and yet we discovered in the last 30 years that through royal papers that have only been re- released over that time that it's another thing a lot of people know about Queen Victoria, she was very fond of her gillie. This was after Prince Albert, her husband, died. She got very close to one of her gillies. A gillie is a, a Highland Scottish servant. So they were very close. But it turns out from these papers that have been discovered that she secretly married John Brown. Now, if that had got out at the time, it would have been a huge scandal because he was just a servant and she was the queen. So this and the, the evidence for this is very strong because on his deathbed, a local minister of the church confessed that he'd married Queen Victoria to John Brown. But, but all this information, all the paperwork was suppressed because it, it would have been probably the scandal to end all scandals. So that's my favourite from the Victorian period. I think my okay. other favourite, although the man was very wicked, was Queen Victoria's son, um, Edward VII, because he seemed to be able to behave appallingly badly, but he didn't keep it a secret and no one seemed to mind. And my theory is after Queen Victoria, this, you know, this decades of everyone being very repressed, Edward the Seventh went to the other extreme and slept with lots of other people. He appeared in public with Mrs Keppel and other mistresses. He just didn't care who knew. And for some reason, I think probably because people were so bored with this very moral era that had just come to an end, that they, they thought, well, it's great, we've got a very jolly king who does what he likes and knows how to have fun. So, But the thing about Edward Seventh that's extraordinary too is that he actually committed perjury. Um, he was cited in a divorce case and claimed he hadn't slept with a, a particular woman that everyone knew he had slept with. Now, for anyone else, that would have <laughs> been three or four years in prison um but because he was the, i mean this is probably the last era where a member of the royal family really was above the law so i think that's my i'd put that as the runner up favorite uh Scandal, but there are are so many. It's very hard, you know. There's so many others I could mention that I love.
0: Yeah, do you have one more? We we were going to give you top three. Is there one more that you can pick? I think. I was curious how uh, Wallace Simpson ranks in there.
1: Yes, Wallace Simpson. Well, actually, a lot more new information has come to light about Wallace Simpson. So she's slightly gone from being this woman, this American woman who was demonized, and I think a lot of the feeling in the UK about about poor Meghan Markle. Comes about because people constantly think, oh, here's another American woman who's going to pinch our king, or not in this case, but pinch a senior member of the royal family. So there's that echo of the past. But the information that's come out about um, Mrs. Simpson suggests that she was this completely dominating character. And that was the thing that Edward VIII liked about her. So, for example, I've discovered from servants that uh, I've interviewed in the 1980s that. Edward VIII would get down on his knees in front of Mrs Simpson and paint her toenails. And he loved this. (laughs) And she would send him out of the room. She treated him like a servant. Sometimes she treated him like dirt. And he seems to have loved this because all the previous women that he'd been connected with, they were very deferential. So I think there was this marvellous. Here was this woman who didn't care that he was the Prince of Wales, and then the, she didn't mind about that at all. She wanted to boss him around, and that's exactly what he wanted. So I, I think the fact that that's oh. come to light, it casts a fascinating light on a scandal we thought we knew very well.
2: That doesn't seem to be sort of a theme, I feel like, because it's also apparent in the Backstairs Billy story where someone who treats a royal just like any other person and, you know, not deferential at all is really respected by them and is a close confidant to them.
1: I think you're absolutely right because you can see it in the man that Princess Margaret married, later Lord Snowden. He, he was rude to her all the time and she loved it precisely, <laughs> as you say, because everyone else she met deferred to her. And I think that made her think mm-hmm. they're only being nice to me and agreeing with me because of who I am. And so she always felt she wasn't getting at the truth. But then when someone came along and told her really quite, I suppose, quite cutting things about her personality, she's, she thought this must be the truth. This is so refreshing. It's not, it's not someone grovelling at my feet because I'm a member of the Broad family. Right.
2: They need that sense of normalcy in their lives. I think that's is what absolutely right. Yes, like, they
1: need this. Yeah. I mean, John Brown in Queen Victoria, we just talked about, he was the same. He used to say, oh, hurry up, woman, you're so damn slow when, when he would, you know, they'd be walking <laughs> out on the estate and she thought this was mild and he used to force her to drink whiskey with him. So there was all this sort of thing going on. And if more recently, I think that's the thing with Harry. Along comes Meghan Markle, and she just says, right, Harry, we're going to do this. We're going to go and live in Windsor. No, I don't like Windsor. We're going to go and live in Canada. And I think he loves that, someone taking control and being completely honest with him, which for a royal doesn't happen that much. And as you say, it normalizes things for them, which is very refreshing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing just reading the entire book where it's fascinating to think about how the public perception and knowledge of royal scandals has shifted over time. You talk about how the press used to stay silent about all these indiscretions of the monarchy, but there was a real tipping point with the 1960s and then also the Duke of Windsor scandal with Wallace Simpson, who we were just talking about. But by the era of Charles and Diana, as you write, I love this, that newspaper editors were really sharpening their teeth and ready to spring. But now it feels like the public skewering of royals by the media, whether there's a scandal or not, it feels kind of selective What are your thoughts on the role of the press in all of this?
1: Well, I think you're right. Something happened as it happened through all aspects of society in the 1960s, things that wouldn't have been dreamt of before, things you felt you just couldn't do. Suddenly, they all became possible in the 1960s. And of course, that also affected the way the public and the press treated the royal family. And that was partly too, because in previous decades, uh, the owners of newspapers in, in Britain they wanted to remain friends with the royal family, so they wouldn't allow their editors to publish this stuff. But then, by the sixties, you you tended to get outsiders who took over the newspapers, and they just wanted to sell newspapers. They, they didn't mind if the royals didn't like them, and so they began to publish this stuff. And they realised it was a goldmine. You know, newspaper um, newspaper sales soared. It's a bit like even now, if you put a picture of Diana on the cover of a magazine, the sales go up, even now, 30 years after she died. But I think they are more selective now, and they they have, I think they're much more, there's a process of we build them up and then we knock them down. It, it happened very much with Meghan Markle. When she first came, it was a breath of fresh air, it was just what the, the royal family needed, someone who was biracial, who was divorced, with a completely different background. And I've heard from people who, who were close to the Queen that the Queen loved her at first, but of course the royal family wants people who come into it to obey the royal family's rules. And I think Meghan wanted to rewrite the rules and that was that was never gonna be allowed to happen. And so initially when the press, the press did more or less what the Queen did, the press loved her, but then when the rumors began to circulate that she was trying to change things in the royal family, of course that meant you know, that was a, such a target for the British press. They just couldn't resist it.
0: But then you also see them staying silent on so much else that goes on. And I think it is fascinating to see that historical context in your book. The, the media, I mean. Yeah,
1: if you take Charles, for example, back in when when he was falling out with Diana, I mean, the press were, they really had it in for him. They were very aggressive in their tone. They were very critical. But because a story has developed that actually... Charles's marriage to Diana wasn't something he really chose. It was kind of forced on him for dynastic reasons by the rest of the family, especially the Queen Mother. Once that was realised, people thought, "Okay, Charles really, right from the beginning, wanted to be with Camilla. Even before Diana, he was forced to do this because that's what the royal family does. They said, oh, she's divorced. You can't possibly marry her. I think now the, the press are more sympathetic because they're always remembering this person who... Apart from Diana, which there is now seen as not his fault, he's been incredibly loyal to the same woman for, you know, for decades. Mm-hmm. So I think he's being left alone because there are better targets. And that's why I think poor old Meghan Markle is, is. I mean, obviously Andrew now, I should think Harry and Meghan are delighted that, that Andrew's really messed things up because... You know, he's the scandal to end all scandals, really.
2: Yeah, that's what we wanted to ask you about because we wanted to get your thoughts, Tom, on Andrew escorting Queen Elizabeth into Prince Philip's service of Thanksgiving. I mean, what was your reaction, speaking of
1: Andrew? I was amazed from one point of view, um, but not surprised from another point of view. Because if you you remember, Andrew has always been the Queen's favourite child, and I think that's part of his problem. She brought him up to feel he could do no wrong, that whatever Andrew wanted must be right because Andrew wanted to do it. And the complete opposite of Charles, who was neglected to some extent and therefore is not so confident, not so arrogant. But at Westminster Abbey, I think the Queen thought, I can't completely abandon my son, my favourite son, whatever he's done. So there's a kind of compromise going on there. He didn't come in through with her through the main entrance. He came in through a side entrance, which to some extent lessened his the sort of sense that, okay, the Queen is trying to rehabilitate him. It was more discreet Mm. than that. But I think probably the balance was slightly wrong because everyone, of course, noticed what was going on, that she wanted him there. She was trying to be discreet by bringing him in through a side entrance. But of course, in a way, trying to be sneaky, if that's the right word, has produced far more critical commentary. I think it probably was a mistake. You know, it's going to take years before, if ever, he's rehabilitated. I don't think he'll ever be rehabilitated because of what he's done. But I think the Queen just cannot bear to completely cut him adrift. And I think on that day, she was advised not to have him there. And she just said no.
0: Yeah, another scandal. Do you think scandals boost the monarchy and help their relevance? Like, I think talking about the media and how they capture it all. And, you know, I just, I loved your epilogue in the book. You know, without them, we wouldn't have things like the crown and all of this all of this around it does it help them.
1: I think that's right. They, they, although they don't like it when the press coverage is negative or critical, it does keep them in the public eye. And they know better than anyone because I think that someone once said about the Royal Family, they're a bit like the Catholic Church. They don't think in in decades, they think in centuries. And the point for them is survival. <laughs> and while the newspapers are talking about them, even if a lot of the time it's very negative, they're there. People don't forget them. I mean, there's, there's, there's one thing worse than being criticised in the newspapers for the royal family, and that's being ignored by them. That would be a disaster. And they know that this this system the press use, they build them up and they knock them down. So as in the case of Charles, eventually the pendulum swings the other way when they've been criticised and the press starts to be nice about them again. So I think the royal family does need the press, even when the press is being quite nasty, yes.
0: Yeah. Well, there's so much to talk about. I did want to mention this delightful detail that I really enjoyed in the book, where you have so you make the comparison between the Duke of Windsor and Diana. You said that they had a similar kind of demeanor. There was a sideways glance. I really liked that. I just wanted to call that out for a second.
1: Yeah, I think I think a lot of the royals see what other royals do because there's so much in, in the public eye. I think they often adopt the mannerisms of of other royals if they think those royals have been successful or have been treated well or have a good reputation or whatever it is they almost imitate what they do because they think that will work and you've got to remember too the royals live in a bubble so they're not really as sensitive to the risk of copying each other Mm -hmm. if you're outside that bubble somebody might say to you, that's a bit affected, you're, you know, you're, you're, you've you're, got the mannerisms of some other person, but no one in the royal bubble will ever say that. And of course, Diana's mannerisms added enormously to her reputation for being sensitive and for being mm. a kind person. And, and the fact that she always seemed shy with that lowered eyelid look, that was very mm. effective. And it was to some extent a pose. I mean, although Diana mm. was a sensitive, very kind person, she was manipulating the media by doing that. It was, it was to some extent an act, not completely, but to some extent. And I think other royals have said, hang on a minute, that act worked very well. We should try it.
0: And the Duke of Windsor did that same sort of move.
1: He did exactly the same sort of move. Yeah, he did the, the slight shy and it, it made him very popular when he went to, I think because people, a lot of people in the poorer parts of the UK back in the 1930s, they always thought of the, of the royal family as very arrogant, very aloof. But here was this chap who was going to be king, the Duke of Windsor, who was shy. He deferred to people. He he didn't look like the arrogant aristocrat they expected. And it worked very, very well for him, too. And and actually, by the way, I think Harry's going to start doing it soon because he he needs more (laughs) more sympathetic coverage.
0: (laughs) Over here, he gets lots of Yeah. I wanted to
2: ask you, Tom, because it's, it's fascinating to me. One of the things a lot of chapters in your book have never before heard or seen information about some of the royals, like the servant who saw one of Diana's lovers kind of in his shorts one night hiding behind her or something he who's in the corner. And so I want to ask about sourcing for this. How do you track down those people that have these stories we've never heard before?
1: Well, it all started for me because I'm old enough to remember the 1980s. And um, I actually worked in Windsor on a very eccentric oh. magazine that had to do with the countryside in England and riding and horses and dogs the kind of thing the royal family Mm. liked and our office overlooked Windsor Castle and Windsor Park and I I became very friendly with the Queen's gamekeeper who who I won't mention he's dead now but I won't mention him because his widow's still alive I became very friendly with him and at that time I was researching a book on um, servants who'd worked in big houses you know the kind of Downton Abbey houses and he said to me this this chap said to me oh you really need to talk to and he gave me the name of a of, of a maid who'd retired and had worked for edward the eighth so i talked to her and every time i talked to a servant i was given a contact for another servant so eventually oh, wow. i interviewed nearly a hundred people who'd been oh in God. service either in in the homes the sort of downtown houses or in in, Windsor with the Royal Family, or at Buckingham Palace, or Kensington Palace. So I built up this huge archive of material, but it was all through that initial contact with the Queen's gamekeeper, because of course, he knew everyone. And he was, he was really kind and, and very nice. And he just said, Look, I'll give you people to talk to. And then they gave me more people to talk to. So it sort of spread from that.
2: I'm sure you're so glad you followed up on that first lead. <laughs> Definitely.
1: Amazing. It was the best thing I ever did.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: okay. and what a great view from that office. My goodness. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and every day the band, the, the, the royal band would go past the office and we would all go out in the street wow. and watch them. Every single day it would go by. It was marvelous. Wow. It was really oh, fun. Oh, that sounds <laughs> fabulous.
0: Incredible,
2: Tom. We need to ask you. Scandals aside, which member of the royal family do you most identify with? They can be living or dead.
1: Actually, in a in a strange way, I think um, George V, the Queen's grandfather, because he was very he tried really hard to do the right thing, and he whatever he did. Everyone said he's so dull and he's so boring. All he's interested <laughs> in is his stamp collection, <laughs> and so I've always thought he wasn't a great performer, and um, he he was quite shy, quite retiring. But he didn't want to live in any of the big houses. He had a he had a small cottage in the grounds of, of Sandringham House, and he seemed to be a genuinely modest. Quiet person who didn't like all the razzmatazz of being a royal. So I, I feel a certain, you know, I think it's because he was probably the most ordinary royal, mm. certainly of the last century.
2: He was the one that Elizabeth called Grandpa England, is that right? Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, he was very kind.
1: He wasn't so kind to his own children, but as in many families, once he became a grandfather, he was very kind (laughs) to the children. It was always like that. The parents are strict (laughs) and the grandparents are very indulgent. There's one other royal that I I think is marvellous because I I collect clocks, and Mm. I think he was the seventh son of George the Third, and he never obviously he never became king because he was the seventh son, but he lived mm-hmm. in Kensington Palace, and and his his apartment was full of songbirds, which he allowed to fly around free in the in the apartment. So all the furniture was ruined because of their droppings, and he but he collected clocks, and best of all, he collected hundreds of Bibles. But he was an atheist. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so I love his eccentricity. I like to think of myself as a bit of an eccentric. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, my gosh. This has to be one of the best answers to that question ever. Thank you for sharing really all that. Is. and such a variety, really too. Is. Tom, it has been a joy to have you on. I feel like we could keep talking to you forever. Well, we, we, everyone it. needs to get this book. I enjoyed it very
1: much, too. Thanks.
0: Where can everyone keep up with your – all of our listeners keep up with you and your upcoming work? What's well, the best place to follow my you?
1: publisher's bite back. They regularly have stuff that I do on there. So anybody who looks on there Perfect. will will certainly find me.
2: The book is out now. It's Scandals of the Royal Palaces, an intimate memoir of royals behaving badly by Tom Quinn. Thank you so much, Tom. This was such a delight.
1: Thank you very much too. I enjoyed it very much.
2: Now, before we adjourn, here are our highs and lows. It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. My low is that there's just been a lot of Charles and Camille engagements, and I feel like they've all been kind of snoozy. And maybe that's just because I don't watch EastEnders, but I really want to care. I really do want to care about <laughs> this. it's the best low ever. But even the tour of the Republic of Ireland, it was like nothing about it really bubbled up. And I guess that was the Caribbean tour was just really overshadowing it, but... I don't know. It seems like it's going to be a pretty to. quiet yeah. few weeks, which I'm not complaining about cuz the the Cambridges are actually the kids are on break till April 20th. It's their like Easter break, so we're not yeah. going to see much of them. and But we will see Harry soon for the Invictus game. So that's something to look forward to. And we'll to. see
0: the Wessexes. They're about to embark on their royal tour. So, yeah. Milo is actually the death of Patrick de I He died Friday. He was 78 years old. But he's responsible for some of Diana's most iconic images. I always think of that black and white strapless dress photo with the tiara. And that was, I think, Vogue 91. She had credited him as being her dream photographer and actually contacted him to work with her. Patrick said this of Diana, we became friends, she was funny and kind, but fundamentally she was a very simple woman who liked very simple things. I think Patrick has, was always on my radar. I think post a Devil Wears Prada. Remember that scene where <laughs> I've got you know, Patrick. Yeah, yeah, get me de Marchelier. and she's like, <laughs> oh, and then when she nails it, she's like, I've got Patrick. Yeah. I had to rewatch that scene and prep for this, but um, but yeah, that's a sad loss. So all right, my
2: high this week is this wedding playlist reveal by Idris Elba. We keep getting like drips of information from Idris Elba about him DJing at the Sussexes' wedding in 2018. So here's the clip. He. Talked about
0: that. You've DJed at Glastonbury. Yeah. Prince Harry and Meghan's wedding. I did that. By as the well. way, what is the vibe of a, a Harry and Meghan wedding? Um, what tune was what tune was the one that got everyone going crazy?
1: I want to dance with somebody. Of course. They went off on that tune. Yeah. Um. What else was there? Um. Still, Dr. Dre. Wh- went what? went Off. Went off. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's I knew tunes. I liked them. It's Meghan's tunes. Yeah. Yeah. I knew I liked them.
2: I love that. So, Still Dre, which I can't even imagine how fun their reception was. He also mentioned in 2019 that Meghan Markle sent him a playlist with some West Coast on it. And that was when he originally revealed that Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody was on there as well. But speaking of the Sussexes and weddings, I don't know if you saw this, Rachel, but brooklyn beckham's wedding is in florida this weekend which i wish what? i could go back to south florida where i was and try and stake out their uh well, the event Sussex is be there <laughs> i guess that people are saying they're invited because they're i mean megan seems close with victoria beckham and yeah they're in america who knows so i'm gonna figure that know. out no i was psyched to hear time. i
0: want to dance with somebody because that's like our internal jam at pure wow. so i think yeah. that that's that's really kind of a fun little mention My high was the news that the Cambridges had a date night courtesy of Tom Cruise, of all people, for Top Gun Maverick, (laughs) which comes out at the end of May. Apparently, he arranged a private screening at an IMAX in Leicester Square, Sophie Wessex was there, Beatrice and Eugenie also attended. But I'm just like, did this friendship blossom at Wembley? You remember they were in the shared box at the Euro Cup final?
2: Yeah. I just have so
0: many questions about it. And do also you think kind he jumped it. up on one of the movie
2: seats and started?
0: <laughs> I mean, I got to say, I know this is crazy, but I I love Tom Cruise's movies. Like I actually went down a serious rabbit hole in preparation for today's episode watching the Top Gun trailer and I got like emotional. What's wrong with me? But I also should say I have not seen the 1986 original, which that is actually (gasps) why this all happened because William's a huge fan of the original. So anyways, I'm into this friendship, but also is a little weirded out by it, but it's a high.
2: All right. Just a reminder before we close, please, 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 if you're in the app right now, Apple Podcasts, please just tap the five stars. We would love, love, love a five-star review. Here is a review that says I am a longtime listener and lover of all things royal I truly count these ladies as friends that share my fascination with the royal family I look forward to the episodes each week and plan out when I will be listening my only complaint is I wish the episodes were three times <laughs> as long thank you for creating such fun and engaging content I
0: also it is the biggest compliment that you plan out when you'll be listening that is, I think the highest praise we've received so thank you for that detail thank
2: you so much definitely email us at info at gallerypodcast.com and follow the podcast on Instagram, royallyobsessedpodcast. Till next week.
0: God God save save the pod. Her majesties of Royally Obsessed have
1: retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at royallyobsessedpodcast
0: and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a Gallery
2: Podcast production.